The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, fellow sapiens. I'm Chip Galwell. I'm Esteban Gomez. I'm Jen Shannon. I'm Aura. And I'm Yuli. And we are a new generation of anthropologists and archaeologists who love to investigate what makes us human. Over the years, we've gone to space to find out whether it's a human place. Three, two, one, and liftoff. And we've wondered why some people eat bugs. It's the black ants that when they die, they actually release citric acid. And others don't. Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) And we've learned how reconnecting with ancestors, from uncovering sunken slave ships to identifying hidden burial grounds, are human acts of reclamation. That was according to the wishes of the descendant community. We are Sapiens, a podcast for everything human. And we can't wait to answer your questions about the human experience. Please subscribe now, wherever you're listening to this show, and check us out at sapiens.org. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Shiloh Maples. I'm Turtle Clan. I'm Anishinaabe. I'm a citizen of the Little River Band of Ottawa. I also belong to the Ojibwe people of Swan Creek and Black River. I am speaking to you from my homelands here in the Great Lakes. Welcome to Spirit Plate. In this space, we will talk about indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Within this growing indigenous food movement, there is an incredible story of reclamation and intertribal solidarity. Powerful yet untold examples of natives resisting and thriving. The stories of our foodways are one of the greatest testaments of indigenous brilliance and our beauty of spirit. But before we can talk about indigenous people's food traditions and contemporary efforts to revitalize their food systems, we have to understand the history of disruption that makes this work necessary. In this episode, and throughout season one, we'll discuss some of the social, political, and historical reasons why the indigenous food sovereignty movement is vital. By way of introduction, I'm sharing what inspires me to devote my life's work to revitalizing ancestral foodways, and I invite you to consider how this might look in your own life. I introduced myself in a particular way, in the way that my elders and teachers have taught me. And when I do this, I'm sharing who I am. My clan, Turtle Clan, tells you who I have kinship ties to and about the responsibilities I have to all of my relations. My introduction tells you which indigenous nations I belong to 
Ojibwe and Odawa. I introduce myself this way because it reminds me of who I carry with me, who my work is for, and to who I'm accountable. It reminds me of my ancestors, who are the foundation of my existence and my work, and it calls them into being with me. This introduction also positions me in relationship to this place that I call home. It grounds me in all these relationships and what it means to be a person of the Great Lakes. Like in many indigenous cultures, Anishinaabe history and stories are passed down in oral tradition. In the sacred stories passed down from my Anishinaabe elders, it is said that the first human was put down on earth where the fresh and salt water meet, in what is now known as the St. Lawrence Seaway. In the beginning, our ancestors lived there on the East Coast, until a set of prophecies came to our people. Among them, it was foretold of newcomers and the destruction that would follow them. It was said that our people would be destroyed if we did not move westward. These ancestors were told to follow the path of a particular shell and trace the waterways until we found food that grows on the water. So that's what they did. They migrated westward until they came to the Great Lakes and found our sacred manomen, or wild rice, the food that grows on the water. All along the Great Lakes, various small groups broke off to establish settlements in places we consider our permanent home and the place which we must care for. I tell this story first because my ancestor's story is part of my story. So I must start by acknowledging them and their journey. I also share this because it illustrates how, as Indigenous people, our identities, histories, spirituality, and traditions are inseparable from our respective ancestral territories. The very fabric of who we are is defined by our relationships to the inhabitants of those territories. All those plants, animals, and humans that we live in relationship with. As an Anishinaabe person, when I look out over the landscape of my homeland, across the Great Lakes region, I see all of these human and more than human relatives that I am connected to. I am a person of the wild rice, from the grand rivers and wetland marshes that raised me. I am from the Three Sisters Gardens, abundant and nourishing. I am of Sleeping Bear Dunes and Manitou Islands, of sturgeon and whitefish. I am of Grandmother Oaks and Grassy Meadows, and of Wild Strawberries. My sense of identity is deeply rooted in those relationships, and this relational worldview shapes how I see my role and purpose. As Indigenous peoples, our cultural teachings are our original instructions or ethics of what it means to be a good human. As people of an oral tradition, these cultural teachings are often passed down through storytelling, whether an old sacred story or a more contemporary narrative. The wisdom of our ancestors guides our daily lives, reminding us why we live in a particular way. These stories remind us how we, as people of a particular place, live sustainably and maintain good relationships in this place. From this perspective, practicing our place-based foodways goes beyond basic sustenance. They affirm and renew relationships, nourish our hearts, and are part of how we uphold our responsibilities to our relatives. Whether we are a seed keeper, farmer, 
forager, chef. Practicing and preserving our foodways also makes us historians and cultural memory keepers. Passing on the stories of how our peoples and our more than human kin have evolved through millennia together on this shared landmass. Every time we learn a new recipe, plant a seed, and feast together, we are helping to transmit knowledge, technologies, and skills from one generation to the next, just as others did for us. As we retrace our ancestors' foodways, we also pick up their languages, their ceremonies, and their knowledge. We know that food does not exist separately from culture, history, or place. This idea of this assimilation starts very early and builds on itself, that Europeans and Americans see natives, tribal nations as savages, heathens, pagans, uncivilized, and it's their duty to civilize them by a whole plethora of means and by any means necessary. So by the time we get to the 1880s, the tribes have been just gone through literally centuries of conflict. They've gone through centuries of policies forced upon them to change. And by the 1880s, for lack of a better term, tribes have been ground down. They've been war, diseases, loss of population. And they are, in my opinion, in this, especially east of the Mississippi, they're in this mode of surviving to the next generation. The long history of colonization has had debilitating impacts on indigenous communities. From the very beginning of colonization, food, and land have been weaponized against indigenous peoples. During the American Revolution, scorched earth policies instructed armies and settlers to burn entire fields of crops and slaughter herds of animals to starve out indigenous peoples and to coerce them into compliance. During the treaty era, treaties were made between indigenous nations and colonial powers so that Europeans could obtain land. The hundreds of various treaties outlined the conditions under which this land was exchanged and outlined the responsibilities of each party. The indigenous nations would cede the land and various promises were made in exchange, including retaining hunting and fishing rights, foods, and other resources. But inequalities were baked into the treaty-making process from the start. Indigenous communities with the oral traditions and relational worldviews did not anticipate colonial notions of land title and resource extraction. Even if the terms of the treaties had been scrupulously honored, any conflict of question about the terms of the treaties were decided by colonial legal authorities. The colonists' deliberate refusal to understand indigenous worldviews resulted in the erasure of indigenous rights without technically violating the letter of the treaties. And then, almost all of the treaties were eventually broken. From the Indian Removal Act to the establishment of reservations, federal Indian policy has repeatedly removed indigenous people from their ancestral homelands and restricted access to the hunting, fishing, and foraging lands of previous generations. This physical and spiritual displacement also meant a loss of traditional knowledge and wellness practices that were specific to a particular locale. Our traditional practices were criminalized, and our peoples faced prosecution for generations. The social policies that formed the United States forced indigenous peoples to assimilate into settler society and impose systems of private land ownership, a concept completely antithetical to indigenous peoples 
as we see ourselves as merely stewards and believe that no one can own the land. This idea of how a human you know, interacts with their land is directly tied to the idea if they're savage or not. You know, that these tribal communities originally utilized millions of acres of land to carry out their way of life. They were moving with the seasons, they moved with the resources. There was this constant ebb and flow of how you interacted with your environment. When tribes reserved the rights and treaties to hunt, fish, and gather on the land, they didn't do so as an exercise of dominion over property. They reserved these rights so that they could maintain their relationships with plants, fish, and four-legged creatures, all of their more-than-human relations. These agreements secured these relationships and life-sustaining resources not just for current generations, but for their descendants as well. Generations of Native American children were sent to Indian boarding schools, where they were brutally and systematically stripped of their identities. Following World War II, the U.S. government began the process of terminating remaining tribal governments, meaning that the U.S. government would no longer recognize indigenous governments as sovereign nations. Urban relocation programs of the 1950s incentivized Native American people to leave reservation communities, displace many Native individuals to urban centers. Over the following decades, tens of thousands of Native people were forced into city centers across the United States. Native people often face isolation and disconnection from their communities and land-based practices. This displacement made it easier for the U.S. government to terminate its relationship to these nations and abandon its treaty responsibilities. The end result is that tribal people were made without access and rights to land and their more-than-human relations. Here on Turtle Island, also known as North America, Indigenous peoples have endured over 500 years of genocide, disenfranchisement, and oppression. Indigenous communities have been systematically stripped of their autonomy, knowledge, and skills, and social systems that once enabled healthy living. Policies determining where and how Indigenous people could live were made with neither consultation nor representation from those communities. This has resulted in a social environment and food system surrounding indigenous populations that is not inclusive of their worldview and practices and actively undermines their well-being. The full list of policies, systems, and institutions that have marginalized indigenous people are too numerous to name and discuss here, but are an integral part of this larger story and the reason this podcast is necessary. I don't share this history to cast blame or wallow in despair. However, I firmly believe that we must know where we have been in order to understand how we've gotten here. There must be a common understanding before we can move forward. Each of us that consider this land home have a responsibility to know the history of this place. We cannot claim to share an honest story of this land or our food without including indigenous people's experiences. Critical understanding of the journey that led us here needs to become a more common understanding before American society can give life to a new, more equitable food system. We are not a historically underserved population. History has not done this. Racism and colonialism have worked hand in hand through policy to build the society and the current food system. These tools of colonization have disrupted our relationships to food and land. 
Indigenous peoples were never meant to survive within these systems, unless we gave up who we are. Although most would be more comfortable believing that colonization has ended in the United States, this is still happening today in similar forms of violence. Indigenous peoples, along with other communities of color and culture, bear the weight of environmental injustices, climate change, land grabbing, and food apartheid. Our communities and bodies tell this story in the devastating rates of chronic illness and intergenerational poverty. I know these stories because my story is among them. I am walking this path of reclamation myself. When I introduce myself as my elders have taught me, I am telling you that the history of this place is part of my personal history as an Indigenous person. What it doesn't tell you is that because of this history, I am the first generation on my maternal side in over a century to be raised by their parents. I grew up in a community where I was a token minority, where everyone knew me as the native kid, but no one could tell me what that meant. Although it provided a nurturing environment for me in many respects, the school I attended barely mentioned Native people in their lessons. Worse, I can remember a number of occasions that I was inadvertently shamed for not knowing my own history. My teachers wanted me to share what it meant to be Native, but I didn't even know what it meant for me to be Native. Over the years, I sought out the clues and pieces of this identity anywhere I could find it. My spirit was so hungry to know where it belonged to know what it meant to be an indigenous person of the Great Lakes. I searched for our narratives and the voice of Native authors and found pieces of myself in their words. I asked questions that Native families and communities have been taught not to speak of. And slowly, I have filled gaps of family history. And there, I found stories that were all too common in Native communities. As I uncovered these hard-earned truths, I began to have a better sense of who I am and where I come from. But it was growing and eating these foods that has truly reconnected me to the rhythms of the natural world and grounded me in the unique qualities of this particular place. I learned our plants and recipes, and they tasted like home. Similar to how the food that grows in the water, wild rice, led my Anishinaabe ancestors to their home, our traditional foods have guided this lifelong journey and process of coming home to myself. This journey has led me to my work as a community organizer and seed keeper in the Indigenous Food Sovereignty Movement, where I've worked alongside Indigenous communities, my relatives, for more than a decade. This personal story is a much longer and more complex story, but what I hope you take away from this podcast is that for most of us in the food sovereignty movement, this is a labor of love to fill in generations of lost knowledge. Our foodways are a path to reconnect, remember, and heal. I know these stories because they belong to my friends, my comrades, and to myself. Food sovereignty is about what are you choosing to put into your mouth on the daily? You know, recognizing that people's choices can be limited by economic factors, by access, but still thinking about on an individual level, what kind of choices are you making? And then on a community level, you know, how is the, the broader community able to connect with each other and watch out for each other and make sure that people are getting access to enough food? And then on a tribal level, so how is the tribal government passing policy that is supporting farmers or people who need access to land or 
for ensuring that treaty rights are being upheld and fought for and maintained. So it's about health, it's about economics, it's about sustainability of ensuring that the methods of food production that people are employing are going to sustain the land. Across food movements, themes of justice, equity, and health are used daily. Yet those concepts hold very different meanings for people. More equitable food system requires narrative equity. People must get to define their own relationship to land and food and tell the stories of their work themselves. This podcast will share what food justice and sovereignty looks like for indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. As your host, I'm setting the table and inviting you into a deeper conversation. So much important work has been done and essential conversations are being had to ensure that food security within indigenous communities. Being confident that you can receive the calories you need each day is necessary to survive. And increasing food access is one goal in many indigenous communities' food sovereignty work. However, food security in itself does not ensure that we are able to eat our traditional, culturally significant foods. Eating the foods that our ancestors ate harvested from the places they harvested, and using the methods they knew. That is what food sovereignty looks like. Being able to feed yourself and ensuring that there's adequate food and ensuring that the methods you're using to procure your food are sustainable and they're not going to harm the other non-human communities around you is basically how people lived here for eons. When we are unable to eat, cook, and harvest these foods... We lose the skills and knowledge of how to live sustainably within our homelands. We literally lose the capacity to feed ourselves, our community, and fulfill our responsibilities to our relatives. And when that happens, we're not able to practice and pass along the teachings that have sustained and nourished generations. When we are neither allowed nor able to maintain our traditional foodways, we're not just losing food, we're losing culture and the world is losing knowledge of how to live in a particular place. If indigenous people have to give up part of their identity to have their basic human rights honored in the current food system, then this food system isn't for them. I work and stand firmly within the indigenous food sovereignty movement because this is the only food movement that is dedicated to fighting for indigenous people's full human rights, including the right to maintain our traditional food systems on our own terms. The indigenous food sovereignty movement recognizes that the preservation and revitalization of culture is essential to the long-term and holistic wellness of our communities. This is a movement that allows our communities to not only survive, but thrive. And in that respect, other food movements simply fall short for me. If food sovereignty means advancing a community's right to define its own food system, then part of this work is also to reclaim cultural and spiritual relationships to food. The indigenous food sovereignty movement, through its activism and cultural revitalization efforts, is providing our communities an opportunity to return to a relationship with the land and each other on our own terms. This podcast is a space for indigenous peoples of Turtle Island to tell their own history and shape the narrative of our communities especially as it relates to land and our relationships to food. Many of the stories about Indigenous people that exist, both in media and in people's minds, are full of falsehoods and have been constructed by people outside of our cultures. This means that generations of Indigenous peoples, like me, 
have had to learn about our own histories elsewhere through someone else's interpretation. Furthermore, Indigenous communities are often invisible to the larger society or are spoken of in the past tense. This invisibility harms our peoples and nations as it often reduces us to stereotypes and creates false notions of pan-Indianism. It is true that our communities have been greatly impacted by colonization and that it has destabilized our food systems. And despite all of colonization's best efforts, our ancestors created something quite beautiful and astonishing. Us. We are living proof that we are not a conquered people. Our people have always adapted to rapidly changing social contexts and environmental conditions within our respective homelands. Our peoples have distilled and safeguarded thousands of years of knowledge. Together, with my guests, I hope to uplift the relevance of our timeless, place-based knowledge to current times. Indigenous peoples have been actively stewarding and managing their respective ancestral territories for as long as we've been here. This continent has never been some untouched wilderness. The North American landscape, as it was at first contact, was a direct result of Indigenous knowledge, technologies, and stewardship. It has always been, and continues to be, lovingly cultivated and fiercely protected. We are descendants of a long line of resilient people who, despite so much pain and sacrifice, will continue to uphold our responsibilities as original caretakers to defend and protect our homelands. Each time an indigenous person tends a garden, cooks, and eats their ancestral foods is an act of resistance and love, and a reclamation of identity. It is time we tell our own stories for our ancestors, our communities, and for our descendants. At this point, some of you may be wondering how the name Spirit Plate relates to all of this. What's the story behind the name? In my tradition, a spirit plate is a cultural practice of putting together a plate of traditional, culturally significant foods and setting it out as an offering to the spirits, our ancestors, the helpers, all of our relations that have given us life. It is a practice that takes place at community celebrations, gatherings, ceremonies, and other special occasions. Preparing a spirit plate is an act of gratitude, acknowledging all that we have received from our relatives, all that sustains us. This simple yet powerful act of feeding each other is an embodied prayer, a hope that we might nourish and keep alive the things that matter most. Likewise, the Spirit Plate podcast is an offering and honoring of all the relations, human and more than human, with whom we are sharing this important, life-sustaining work. It is an acknowledgement of the land and waters that birthed our communities, the homelands that have made us who we are, the complex and unique ecosystems that continue to breathe life into our cultures. It is an honoring of the generations before us, who embodied the meaning of resilience, those stewards who have safeguarded this knowledge and the skills that we would need to live Minobamazawin, a good life, those whose brilliance and tenacity lives on deep within us. In offering these stories, we acknowledge that we did not arrive at this place on our own. We honor those who risked everything to resist, who continued to rise again day after day, who renewed their commitment to their descendants the next generation, to us. Just as our parents, grandparents, and ancestors before them have done, 
Let us ground ourselves in love and reverence for the land and the relationships that nourish us. Let us also remember that food is a gift that makes all life possible. This in itself makes food sacred. Let these stories be a reminder that this work of feeding each other is a spiritual practice. We have all been impacted by ongoing colonialism. It has attempted to deny each of us of our full humanity. Our stories and journeys to this place are deeply personal. Your ancestors are waiting for you to remember them. For some of us, this is much harder to do, or we can only trace their footsteps back so far. My grief, compassion, and solidarity for you is deep. Our healing and liberation are intertwined with yours. For some of us, these stories are familiar. For others gathered here, these stories are new. I'm so grateful for you joining us at this table. Let this gathering be an act of remembering and reclaiming who we are. As peoples rooted in place and kinship, and collectively as humankind. Let this feast of stories be an offering of spiritual nourishment and an honoring of people worldwide who are continuing the tremendous work of preserving and revitalizing their ancestral foodways. We all have inherited the world we live in. None of us here are responsible for the past, but we are responsible for the world and the food system we leave to our descendants. So, let us begin. From the heart of the indigenous food movement, this is Spirit Plate. The Spirit Plate podcast is an honoring of all the indigenous communities across Turtle Island who are working to preserve and revitalize their ancestral foodways. In this space, we will talk about indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. More specifically, throughout season one, we'll discuss some of the social, political, and historical reasons why the indigenous food sovereignty movement is necessary. A critical understanding of the journey that led us here needs to become a more common understanding before American society can give life to a new, more equitable food system. And a more equitable food system requires narrative equity. Indigenous people must get to define their own relationship to land and food and tell the stories of their work themselves. Through interviews with seed keepers, chefs, farmers, and community members, this podcast will share what food justice and sovereignty looks like for Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. As your host, I'm inviting you to the table and into a deeper conversation. I hope that you'll be inspired to think about your own connection to place and how this has influenced your relationship to food. I also hope you'll feel moved to build genuine relationships with the original caretakers of the place you reside and consider how you can stand in solidarity with their communities. If you would like to learn which indigenous communities homeland you reside upon, visit native-land.ca. That is n-a-t-i-v-e-l-a-n-d.ca. Thank you for listening to our very first edition of Spirit Plate. We hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe to Spirit Play anywhere you get your podcasts. And we'll be back next week with Mohawk farmer and seed keeper Rowan White to talk about our relationships to land and food, pulling our responsibilities to our kin, and developing a new lexicon to talk about the food system. Spirit Play is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. 
Thank you to the Spirit Plate team, producer and music composer Kat Yang, audio editor Kat Solanus, researcher Giselle Kennedy-Lord, and intern Indigo Clarkson. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glassier, sound engineer and music designer Max Cuddlechuck, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, at Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com. Until next time, bye-bye.